passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. You're listening to Orange and Blue Bloods. Hosted by EJ Stewart and Tommy Beard. Let's get to it. Talk to Jared Dubin, longtime NBA writer. So, I want to talk about this Knicks game. So, we had the Knicks get their first taste of preseason action last night, notching a win over the Boston Celtics at Madison Square Garden, 114-107. The Seeds were sitting essentially their entire uh, rotation or definitely their entire starting lineup. So no Drew Holiday, no Kristaps Porzingis, the two new guys. Uh, we didn't see any Jason Tatum, no Jalen Brown, no Al Horford. That did not stop, stop Tom Thibodeau from playing his guys and playing his usual starters. So it was the same suspects you saw from last season. Yeah, Brunson. Grimes, there was confusion about whether or not Grimes was going to start. There was, a, I guess, an error when the first starting line went out. People thought it was going to be IQ. Grimes did start last night. For those who did not watch the game and maybe saw something on Twitter saying he didn't. It was Jalen Brunson and Grimes, RJ at the three. You had Randall at the four and Mitchell Robinson at the five. Now, Brunson was dazzling in the six minutes he played, and it was only six minutes in the first quarter. He had 10 points, shot four for five uh, from the field. Mitchell Robinson, I thought, also was impressive. He had 10 points, seven rebounds, three blocks in 23 minutes. Um, uh, this game, though, of course, first preseason game, you're going to see a lot of action from these uh, young guys, a lot of action from these reserves. So, Manuel Quickly, who, of course, was a six-man of the year runner-up last season, he scored a game-high 21 points in 23 minutes. Evan Fournier, a guy who essentially was uh, ostracized from the team last season, he got plenty of second-half burn. He scored 11 points in 21 minutes. Boston's Peyton Pritchard tied Emmanuel Quickly's game-high with 21 in the losing effort. So, these teams... We'll square off again later in the preseason. They have a matchup uh, a week from today. We're recording this podcast Tuesday, October 10th. So October 17th, these teams will battle again. And then they'll also, of course, start the season against each other at Madison Square Garden in just about two weeks' time. So Brunson didn't play all that long, but the time he played was impressive. Seeing as as you follow this league and follow the other guards in this league, and, and, and I'm sure you followed a lot of what he did, how confident are you that last season was not a fluke, 
And is there a higher ceiling you think he can reach uh, coming into uh, this season? I would say I'm extremely confident that it was not a fluke. I've been higher on Brunson than general consensus since mm. the draft. Um, you know, you can go back and check my Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it to see that. And I was, you know, advocate for him to start in Dallas during that time as well. And I thought he was a really good fit playing next to, to Luka Doncic. And then, you know, the various starters that they've had in there in recent years. And it's, it's rare to see someone scale up in usage the way Brunson did last year and still remain extremely efficient and have arguably the most efficient season of his career. I think once you show you can do that for, for a full season, it's extremely unlikely for that to be just a fluke and for that guy to, you know, crater and not be able to to handle it. I think the question right. is more about whether they can put him in better positions because a lot of what he did last year was succeeding despite disadvantageous situations. Like when I wrote about the the Brunson signing at 538 last summer, one of the things I said was, you know, Brunson is basically a prototype Tibbs point guard, given how well he runs the pick and roll and and how tough he is. And and like he obviously knows Tibbs for his entire life, essentially, right. which is something that Tibbs values a lot, but sort of expressed a little bit of skepticism of him keeping up his efficiency because the Knicks weren't going to be able to go spread on as many pick and rolls and they didn't have very good shooting. And that actually bore out in the way Brunson played last year. There wasn't as many spread pick and rolls, and they didn't have very good shooting. So his shots were more well contested than ever before in his career. He just made them anyway. You know, like he, he was just good <laughs> enough to be able to make those shots at basically the same rate as he did before, despite having to take tougher shots. What I want to see is for them to put him in better position to succeed with better spacing and with more spreading the court around him rather than forcing him to operate in those tight spaces so that he has a little bit of an easier time getting to his looks. If they can do that, then I think that there is a little bit more of a ceiling, like you mentioned. If it's more of the same with him having to you know, take tough contested floaters and having to operate in tight spaces more often, then I don't know how much more of a ceiling there is because he was already overperforming what he quote-unquote should have done on the type of looks that he got last year. How much of that do you think is on Tibbs in terms of scheme and how much of that is, is, is really just the, the, how the roster is constructed. Now they will get to Dante DiVincenzo. They added Dante DiVincenzo. They sent Obi Toppin out. You would think that that's an improvement in terms of shooting. Um, do you feel like the Knicks can do things to get Brunson in more space this season? Or do you feel like a lot of it's going to depend on them running these same sets and just hoping that there's a uh, better shooting on the outside. So teams have to respect it more. Yeah. So to take the questions one at a time, um, right. I, I think that some of it is on Tibbs's offense. Some of it is on the roster construction and some of it is on the way Tibbs structures the rotation. I've not been a very big fan of Tibbs's offense throughout his career. I think it's largely unimaginative. And I think even though it was very efficient last year, it, it was pretty unimaginative last year too. It was yeah. high pick and roll to set up an, an isolation for Brunson or Randall for the most part. That is the offense. And that has been Tibbs's offense for pretty much his entire career. And when the guys that you're setting up those one-on-ones for play well and shoot well, it can work really, really well, as we saw last year. Getting one-on-ones or advantages for your best players 
is a lot of what teams try to do offensively. And when their players as good as Brunson and Randall were last year, it can work extremely effectively. Some of it, like I said, is the, is the roster construction because when it's a high pick and roll, if that pick and roll is with Mitchell Robinson or Isaiah Hortenstein, you're going to have someone diving down through the lane towards the rim. And Brunson does his best work when moving towards the rim. And if it's mm-hmm. a pick and roll with Julius Randle, then you're going to have Robinson or Hartenstein or Jericho Sims hanging out in a dunker spot, which inevitably is going to have, you know, another defender near the paint, which right. again, Brunson does his best work in the paint. And then some of it I think is the way Tibbs structures the rotation where Brunson doesn't spend a lot of time playing without Randall. So he's not going to spend as much time playing in the smaller lineups that are afforded mm-hmm. to somebody like Emmanuel quickly. And he's not going to spend as much time running the court as you know he would if he were playing more often with the bench unit. Um, I think if if the Knicks separate Brunson and Randall in the rotation a little bit more, then you might see him in a little bit more of those spread situations. But I do think there is some merit, at least, to having your best players on the court together as often as possible. And obviously the Knicks offensively, at least were really, really good with those two guys on the court together last year. And there, there's, there's merit to not separating them as especially given how well the bench played last year. And it's interesting. You talk about the rotations because one thing I saw last night and you don't know if it's because Brunson was clearly on this five to six minute pitch count, or if it was something that they were forecasting for the season, but one thing we've seen, as you mentioned, yes, Brunson and Randall play most of the first quarter together, sometimes the entire first quarter, and they come out essentially together. RJ has been kind of pegged as the starter who plays with the reserves in a nine-man rotation. Last night, we saw Brunson come out first, and RJ and Randall stayed in. Now, we never saw Brunson go back in with that second unit, and there were some weird things because Josh Hart, as I didn't mention, he did not play in this game. So we had a lot of Jericho Sims at the four. It was not pretty for those wondering what that looked like. Um, but like, I, I kind of wondered if, if perhaps that was maybe them foreshadowing, hey, we're going to try maybe to do some of that. Because as you mentioned, it's something that a lot of Knicks fans have complained about a ton, that there is no staggering of Randall and Brunson's minutes. And look, the bench unit has been a strength of the Knicks, especially uh, for most of the types of time, especially after Josh Hart came over in the trade. But I do think it's a good point that you make about how that could actually end up uh, hurting, uh, maybe not allowing Brunson to kind of occupy and and create in the spaces that make him most efficient. Yeah, I mean, I would be pretty surprised if Tibbs changed the rotation when they mm-hmm. essentially swapped out only one piece of the nine-man rotation. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's much more likely that they were like, Brunson's only going to play six minutes tonight, so he'll be the guy that comes out at the six-minute mark. But you know, if they do decide they're going to stagger, that would be a pretty significant change for Tibbs. And uh, I'd be very interested to see how that works out, especially because they are small off the bench because the the one change they made in the rotation was going from Obi Toppin to Dante DiVincenzo, which means mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of locking themselves into at least some small ball, particularly when the bench units are out there, unless they're going back to a 10-man rotation and Jericho Sims is getting the backup four minutes, which I don't think is in the cards most likely. But I do think if there's ever anybody from the nine-man rotation that's out, I think the most likely scenario, unless 
the player that's out is Quickly or Brunson, then you would see Deuce. I think the most likely scenario would be Tibbs going back to Sims as a backup four playing with Hartenstein because even though that unit was not very good together, I think people that have read uh, Fred Katz at The Athletic know that Tibbs likes that group no matter what and is uh, <laughs> going to value the rim protection over anything else when making changes to the rotation. Yeah, and, and that's unfortunate. And it's not anything to do with Jericho Sims. I love Jericho Sims, and I think that if Hartenstein wasn't here, he'd be a fine backup five man. But we, we've just never seen that unit work. <laughs> I mean, and I've tried to give it a chance, and I've, I've wished on it and hoped that – because I'd like to see Jericho Sims get some more time. But in this NBA, it, I honestly watching it, especially watching it last night, I was actually getting some really bad, like, first-year Derek Fisher running the triangle vibes watching Hartenstein <laughs> and Sims. It felt like I was watching Lance Thomas and, and uh, Jason Smith playing together again. It just – the spacing was so terrible. The Knicks created advantages and several different chance opportunities, and they just couldn't take advantage because they were throwing the ball in the corner to a guy who just was no threat to shoot or no threat to do anything. I mean, he had several open looks, and then he's going right into dribble handoffs because there's nothing he can do 25 feet away from the basket. So um, I, I agree. I think that they're going to stick with the nine men that won't include Jericho, but if there is an injury, I think that there's a chance we end up seeing those lineups and Tibbs is going to just hold on for dear life and hope that they don't get killed when those guys play together. But I'm not all that excited about it. Emmanuel quickly was really great last night as well. Turnovers weren't that great. And he took a little while to get the shot going. Once he got going, he was phenomenal in the second half. Um, and he had career year last season. Why is he so impactful to what the Knicks do in their success? So you mentioned earlier about what the heat did to Brunson in that series in terms of pressuring him up and down the court. It is so valuable when you have another guy on the court that can not just bring the ball up, but actually run the offense. And you can mm -hmm. try different ways to get Brunson the ball. And he doesn't have to expend all of his energy trying to get the ball up the court and get past players that, you know, are bigger and at times more physical than him. That to me is the biggest thing that quickly brings in terms of the Knicks being able to sort of get over the hump in the playoffs. And that's why I was so disappointed that basically him playing a poor first half in game one of the Cleveland series when Brunson got an immediate foul trouble resulted in him somehow, despite being the sixth man of the year runner up, being the guy that got his minutes cut through the rest mm -hmm. of the postseason. It really did not make sense to me at all, especially mm -hmm. given that I think he's also their best team defense player. He is the guy that's always in the right spot. He's always pre-rotating to the next guy to cut off the shot. We saw it throughout the season, how good he is on the ball too. But off-ball defense, he's probably their best guy at doing that. And despite his size, he's able to hang in pretty much any matchup that you give him. You're, like, you're not going to give him the big wing types. You're not putting him on KD or LeBron. But you know any guard that you put him on, he's going to do a good job for the yeah. most part on the ball and off the ball. And between those two things, the defense that he brings and the the way that the, the defense has consistently been better with him on the court throughout his entire career. And then last year you saw in the, the Brunson quickly minutes, the offense was just as good as it was in the Brunson only minutes, but the defense was so much better. His ball handling and ability to be a supplementary playmaker and then 
in the post December, whenever they made the rotation change, he shot, you know, 38, 39% from three, the rest of the year sort of rediscovered his jumper. If you bring all of those things together, it's just such a valuable player. And I feel like he's one of those guys that really, you know, because he's so, you know, loosey goosey and because he's so in some way kind of random and how he attacks, I, I think it, it adds a level of unpredictability to the offense that I think actually helps because I think, as you mentioned, Tibbs runs a pretty predictable, pretty kind of standard NBA offense. And you got a guy who's coming in who's not afraid to come off a fast break and just pull off from 30 or, you know, just kind of just look for his own shot at any point more in time. Uh, it, it's it's a great benefit. And I, I, yeah. I know, look, I, I've called Emmanuel quickly in Amoeba because I feel like this guy can do anything. He can uh, play on the ball. He can play off the ball. He can spot up. He can play and pick and roll. Like, no, nothing you can do offensively and defensively, as you mentioned, he could pretty much do it all as well. So he's definitely an important player. And it's interesting because, you know, I've been one to be critical of Emmanuel Quickly's playoff performance. I didn't think he played well, particularly offensively. But as you noted, his minutes were cut. And Fred Katz, who you mentioned earlier, did report that, you know, Tibbs essentially lost confidence in him uh, in that postseason run. Even despite how poorly he shot, and some of the poor stuff we saw offensively, he still was net positive in those playoff games. So it's something about Emmanuel quickly that when he's on the floor, the Knicks end up playing well. Um, so so hopefully that he can get back into form and he looked really solid last night. Um couple last he was he was still the, their yeah. best defender. Sorry, he was yeah. still their best defender in that Cleveland series, which I think is yes. why the minutes were positive, despite the fact that he didn't shoot well. And, and certainly he didn't really play well. And I think a lot of it stemmed from that that lack of confidence and the minutes being cut basically as soon as he had a, you know, a, a poor shooting first half in that game one of the first round. And then obviously he went, ended up getting hurt in, uh, in the Miami series, you know, he hasn't played well in the playoffs, but the idea that, mm-hmm. you know, and essentially what, it, what is it like a 13 game sample of playoff games now or something along those lines is, you know, more indicative of what he is as a player than the three full seasons that he's put right. together doesn't really pass the smell test to me, but you mm-hmm. do eventually have to play well in the playoffs. So, and knowing Emmanuel quickly, I'm sure he's he's biting at the at the biting at the bit to get enough opportunity uh, to play in this postseason this season. So, uh, a couple quick things on last night before we move on to just the larger picture for this next season. Uh, Mitchell Robinson again was one of the big standouts last night. He looked uh, really it looked like he's in really good shape. I mean, physically. Um, I don't want to say Dwight Howard that's because that's like, you know, ungodly, but like he, I mean, he looks strong, a low body looks strong. It was probably the best. I feel, feel like I've seen him look physically coming into an NBA season in a long time. There was one season where he was way too heavy and just looked so top heavy early in his career. He was really thin, couldn't really handle his weight down low. He looked great. And he was awesome last night. He mentioned three blocks in the, in the rebounding. Um, one of the things we saw on display last night was the offensive rebounding prowess. And, and I want to ask you, what do you feel like, uh, the net impact is of a player like Mitchell Robinson when he's able to have that kind of impact on the offensive glass, despite his struggles at the free throw line. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the ideal scenario for, you know, the best impact Mitch can have is what happened in that Cleveland series where he just totally dominated Jared Allen and Evan Mobley on the glass. He is an extremely good rebounder, especially on the offensive end. The defensive end, he can get a little chasey sometimes and let guys, you know, go around him because he doesn't box them out. But on offense, I mean, the dude knows where the ball is going. And a lot of offensive rebounding is just trying for offensive rebounds. And he does yeah. that really, really well. And, you know, there, when there are possessions or stretches of possessions in a game where you're getting a bunch of offensive rebounds in a row, especially when you're a team that is not a particularly good shooting team, creating those extra possessions and winning that battle by either, you know, not turning the ball over, forcing turnovers or winning the rebounding battle is extremely important. And, you know, he's not a good free throw shooter. And I wouldn't be surprised if teams sort of going hack a Mitch more often, or if when he gets an offensive rebound and tries to go back up, they just foul him right away. That's what I would do. But still getting those extra possessions, even if he gets fouled, even if he misses one or two of the free throws, you're that much closer to getting in the bonus. And if you get fouled often enough, then all of a sudden the guys that are that are good free throw shooters get to the line more often. To me, the he's, he definitely has to improve the free throw shooting. He's got to find a way to make an impact on offense outside of just the offensive rebounding and rolling to the rim. And then he needs to be more composed defensively, not right. going, you know, as, as often for the block shots. He's gotten better at it. He's gotten better at the foul issues, but there are still guys that give him trouble. And there are still, you know, like Domas Sabonis, he is never going to succeed against Domas Sabonis it's, it's because ridiculous. the one thing you have to do against Sabonis, as Kavon Looney showed in the playoffs last year, is not jump. Just don't jump ever. And Mitch, Mitch is always going to struggle with yeah. that. But, you know, there are guards similarly that give him trouble. I think Brunson was a guard that gave him trouble because of the way that he plays with so many upfakes and so many different changes of direction and changes of pace. There are always going to be guys that give him issues like that. But if he can play like he did defensively for the most part last season and he can offensive rebound the way he has, it's it's a valuable player. It's, you know, a, an above average starting center, which is worth – you know, if not the money they gave him, then pretty close to it. And with Mitch, I think there's so much hope that he can kind of reach that defensive ceiling where you look at him as a true uh, defensive anchor. And, and he's shown flashes of it. And we know he has the size and athleticism to do it. But I agree. A lot of it is positioning. A lot of it is poise. A lot of it is, um, you know, kind of defensive IQ in, in certain situations. But with Mitch, in some ways, I almost wish he could like watch like prime Tyson Chandler. And I don't know how with Tyson Chandler's, you know, relationship is with the organization. They could sit him down and watch some film because, like you mentioned, not going for all the blocks. And I think people forget like Tyson Chandler, one festival play of the year, he was not a guy averaging two or three blocks a game. Um, he was not a guy that was calling and trying to just throw everything, but he knew when to go for those blocks, he knew when to stand tall, he knew when to use verticality. And I, I think if Mitch is able to to do that, I feel like, you know, the sky's the limit for, for how he could be defensively. And as you mentioned, you're right. He could end up being an above average center if he can do all those things. Uh, but the, the it was for someone who, like, you mentioned the bonus, and it just like, it was like PTSD because <laughs> that game in Sacramento last year, you know, which was one of the worst first halves that the Knicks played all season. And Bronson got hurt earlier in that game. And Mitch had pretty much very few issues with the fouls. And that was the game where he saw the bonus, and it was like he was. It was one. It made the worst game he played all season. 
And and you're right. That's the kind of player that's going to consistently give him trouble. Yeah, I mean, anybody that is not trying to beat him at the rim, but instead letting him beat himself is the the kind of guy that's that's going to give him trouble on occasion. And, you know, like everybody in the league has guys that give them trouble. Like there are, you know, RJ, when he goes against the Celtics and Robert Williams has a lot of issues because Robert Williams, he tries to go through him and he tries to finish over him. And that's just not going to work because RJ on the drive is like a power player and not you know, a real crafty guy, which is kind of what you have to do to get, you know, through or around Robert Williams. And there are Mm -hmm. plenty of big men that you can have success with as a power player and plenty of wings that when you catch and you go by them on the move and you dig your shoulder in, you can create separation and put up that little, you know, lefty touch shot or that little, you know, scoop around the big man uh, layup that he goes to a lot. There are plenty of teams that he can have success with. Everybody has guys they struggle with. And for Mitch, like Tyson Chandler, you mentioned, that's like the platonic ideal of what you would want to see from him. Or even just Brooke Lopez defensively. Mm. Just watch how Brooke sits back and is still able to spring up to not just contest shots, but block shots, you know? But he's not overly chasing them. There are guys that give him trouble. Like, obviously, Luca gives everybody trouble, but he has especially had Brooke Lopez in hell over the last few years. And that's going to happen every once in a while. But if you're composed enough, you can still get your blocks and you can affect more of the court despite hanging back the way Brooke does and the way Mitch does.